Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is uh, good to be with you all this morning. Um, any day that we can gather together and worship our King is a, it's a wonderful day. And uh, if this is your first time worshiping with us, uh, we are glad to have you here. Uh, my name is Tyler Cash. I serve as uh, one of the pastors of CCF. And uh, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I'd love to do so. Uh, if you have questions, as Pastor Brandon said, you can uh, send an email to info at ccfva.org. Uh, we'll sign you up for the newsletter. Um, but you can also ask any one of our beautiful and wonderful members uh, about what is happening in the life of CCF. Uh, they should be able to keep you well informed and updated on uh, what God is doing in and through uh, this body of believers. Um, today we start a, a study in uh, the minor prophet Amos. And um, Amos is not minor in terms of his significance and his contribution uh, to God's Word, but it's minor in the sense of the length of his writing. Uh, Amos is in the Old Testament, so if you have your Bible uh, turn there with me. We're going to just look at Amos 1 1 today. We're going to do a quick introduction today to kind of set the tone, put this in its proper context, uh, give a little background, a little cultural background of to what is going on in the time of writing of Amos, uh, so that in order for us to take into consideration how this applies to us today. So Amos chapter 1, uh, if you're new to the Bible, check your table of contents, it's all right. Uh, ask somebody beside you, there's no shame in that. But I'm going to read Amos 1, 1 for us. Amos 1, 1 reads this. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your kindness uh, we thank you so much for even just the ways of uh, you've displayed your grace upon us today, uh, that we have a space to gather, that we had vehicles to bring us here, that we had homes that we woke up in, that we had food to eat, we have taste buds, we have sight, we have the opportunity to interact with one another, Lord, and right now we have the opportunity to interact with your word. We praise you for that. So would you help us? Lord, even as an introductory sermon can sometimes feel uh, lecturous. And, uh, Lord, help us, Lord, to learn, to grow, to be strengthened today by understanding the situation at hand. Father, we ask you what we know not. Would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us, and what we have not, would you give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, God's people said. 
The 17th century Puritan preacher and author Thomas Watson once wrote, People are usually better in adversity than prosperity. A prosperous condition is not always so safe. True, it is more pleasing to the flesh, but it is not always best. In a prosperous state, there is more burden. Many look at the shining and glittering of prosperity, but not at the burdens of prosperity. End quote. What is the burden of prosperity? I mean, most would say that prosperity, especially in terms of financial prosperity, is a good thing. I mean, we're, we want to support ourselves. That's a good thing to do, right? Pay your bills, maintain our financial obligations. We want to provide for our families. We want to help others in need, contribute to the needs of those around us. Uh, those are all good and God-honoring things, right? I mean, Scripture tells us, 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Proverbs 14.23 tells us, right? In all toil, meaning work, as you toil, as you, you do the things that you have to do to earn a living, he says, but in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. We should work hard. We should expect to profit in return. But what often happens is that when we start to profit and prosper, when things start to go our way, when we have some money in the bank, we have some cars in the driveway, we have food in the fridge, in the pantry, the best on the table. When we have the latest gadgets, the newest clothes, the, the newest stuff that the world just tells us, man, we've, we've got to have. When we have the, the clothes that we want, and, and the list goes on. Basically, when we are prosperous, we are predisposed to bathe in the sin of self-sufficiency. We're predisposed to just bathe in the sin of self-sufficiency. And that is the burden of prosperity. When we're prosperous, right, we, we, we have this idea that we're self-sufficient. We've earned it. We've, we've done our due diligence. And hey, in Return, God has given us what we have earned. The burden of prosperity. I mean, this is the summary of the principle to which Jesus speaks in Matthew 19 after his encounter with the young, uh, rich ruler. Remember the young man, he comes to him, he asks Jesus, well, you know, hey, what's going on with this salvation thing? He says, hey, I've, I've fulfilled all the law. I've done all the right things. I've, I've done everything that you're saying that I need to do. And Jesus tells him, 
Sell all your possessions. Give what you make to the poor. The young man doesn't do it. He walks away, and then Jesus' disciples, they're asking, right? They're, they're wondering, well, what's going on with this? Remember what Jesus says to his disciples in verses 23 and 24. Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Essentially, what he is telling them is that those that seek prosperity will have a hard time letting go to the material things of the world in exchange for the spiritual things of God. When that's our desire, when it's our focus, we're going to have a hard time. Uh, Essentially, he says, look, it's going to take an act of God to make that happen. It's going to take a changing of the heart. And throughout history, we have seen humanity overtaken by the burden of prosperity. And as a result, man has and does take part in wicked and senseless acts to gain and maintain a prosperous state. We see it happening Many professing Christians have unfortunately been misled by an unbiblical idea that God's primary objective for his people is to have a life of health, wealth, and prosperity now, in this life. This is the circumstances of writing in the book of Amos. See, in Amos' day, God's people were highly prosperous. And because of their prosperity, they had arrogantly concluded that they didn't need God. They didn't need the things of God. In their eyes, they were powerful. They were wealthy. They were wise. And best yet, they were God's chosen people. They were God's folks, Right? They were Christians, so they had an advantage. And in their minds, they could do whatever they wanted without fear of judgment. They figured they could just go on living the lives that they wanted to live, full of indulgences and gain at the sacrifice of others around them, and they would be fine. They exercised their self-identified right to exploit God's grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card rather than seeing God's kindness and patience as a pointer to repentance. I wonder how many of us in here are guilty of that as well. How many of us are guilty of abusing God's grace and using it as a crutch for habitual sin? Well, God will forgive me. It's okay. 
God will forgive me if I do this again, and I'll just continue to do it. No, I, I don't need to, to worry about the pride and the, the anger and the fill in the blank. Because, you know, I said the prayer one time, and so now I'm good. I can just continue to live however I want. As we study the book of Amos, I pray that God would grant us the strength and conviction to grow in our understanding of the seriousness of sin. And that we would learn to hate sin as God himself does. I pray that we would see sin as the sickness it truly is. But while we do, that we would be captivated by the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a deeper and more profound way. See, the more we see the weight of sin and our depravity and our need for a Savior, the more beautiful that Savior becomes. The more we realize how wretched we really are. And how we're continually up against a sin nature that wants to consistently attack and take over. And then we see the beauty of Christ and the work that has been accomplished on our behalf. See, the beauty of the gift of the Holy Spirit working in and through us, sanctifying us, changing us preparing us for eternity. Prophets were God's spokesmen. They spoke for God. The English word prophet comes from two Greek words. One is pro, which means before, uh, in front of, or in place of. Uh, The other one is a femi, which means to speak. A prophet was therefore someone who spoke for God in place of him in their day and time. And Amos' prophecy is God's words warning his people of the judgment to come if they don't turn from their sinful ways. But it is also a word of redemption. Because if they will repent. God promises the true blessing of restoration. The true blessing of restoration. See, the prophets often get a bad rap because we fail to see that when God speaks to his people through the prophets, he is kind and gracious. He is doing a kind and gracious act. Uh, Think of a, a weather report. Now, the weather report isn't always right. We know that, especially here in Lynchburg. But when we look at the forecast of what's to come, it helps us to better prepare our lives and orient ourselves around the weather. We can say, oh, I won't schedule that this day because it's raining. Sometimes it's not scheduled to rain and it rains anyway, but nevertheless, we see that a forecast, something that is told to us to help us prepare, is a good thing. And when 
God's people heard the message of Amos. That judgment was to come. They had a choice. They had an opportunity to repent, to turn, to change the way they were living and turn back to God. And brothers and sisters, we all have that opportunity today. This is not a one-time thing in the book of the old. God did not stop saving in Amos' time. But he's continually saving. The gospel of Jesus Christ is working and will work for anyone who calls on his name. Let me make one clarification before we look at verse 1 and kind of set the stage for the study of Amos. The prophetic office has ceased according to Scripture. Okay, So there are no uh, prophets today as in the way that it was in Amos' day. There are no more prophets like Amos who speak for God, right? Um, I'll give us two examples here in Scripture uh, that kind of speak to this. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. You can write this down if you're taking notes. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken. Like, like he's, he's done it. He's spoken. He has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Uh, this tells us that the final word to us uh, by God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that His method of speaking through His Son and through the apostles who spoke the authority of Jesus Christ with authority to the church is not the same as the various ways He spoke before Jesus came to earth. So there was different ways of speaking, right? Now we also have the closed canon of Scripture we have God's word here revealed to us. Um, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 is helpful here as we kind of look at this idea that the prophetic office is, is ceased. Uh, it says, verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Paul's talking to the church here, talking about uh, who they are now as the church. And he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then this is important. This is crucial. This is verse 20. He says, it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It was built on that foundation. And then it says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, speaking of the church, the universal church, all that have been saved. It says it being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So this tells us that the apostles and the prophets, they laid the church's foundation. 
And if you know anything about building, a foundation gets laid one time. You lay a foundation, and then you build on that foundation. And so now we are recipients of that foundation. So there's many other scriptural arguments, but bottom line, if someone claims to be a prophet, as we're studying the, the, the prophets, they were studying the minor prophet Amos, uh, just keep this in mind, right? If someone claims to be a prophet, uh, they're either very confused or they're just a liar. Okay, anytime someone says that thus saith the Lord, it better be followed by thus saith the chapter and verse. God has spoken to us through his word, and we would be well equipped for the things around us if we would study that word. Grow in our knowledge of the word. Now that we have that out of the way, I want to spend the remainder of our time just looking at verse 1, where we get some kind of helpful insight into this book. And remember the situation that's going on. There is this burden of prosperity that is happening around them. Verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. We'll stop right there. So we, here we see the authorship of this letter, this book, this prophecy. The first thing we see here is that these are the words of Amos, right? Which tells us that he is indeed the author of the book. But then we see also a little bit about his occupation, which a lot of the uh, prophets, the other prophets, we don't, we don't get that. Uh, we see here that um, Amos tells us that he is a shepherd from Tekoa. So what this tells us is that Amos was kind of a herdsman, right? He was a shepherd. He was a, a, it was a, a humble kind of blue-collar profession. Um, during his time, you know, shepherds, they, they, they were men amongst men. I don't want you thinking about, you know, little Bo Peep. Uh, think of a shepherd as someone who was protector. He was a protector of the flock. He was a protecting the flock from, from wild animals even. If you remember the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, uh, we get some insight into the lives of the shepherds of the Old Testament. It says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. So there's David. He's identifying himself as a shepherd as well. And then he says this, right? When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, uh, I got out my rifle. Nah, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. The shepherds would go after. They would save the lambs that had been taken by lions and bears. And then it says, and if he arose against me, David says, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. So he's beating down lions and bears, right? Holding them by the, the beard. I mean, so shepherds weren't these soft chumps, right? They were men. They were strong. They were probably a little smelly, probably a little rough around the edges. Probably had some, you know, scars and calluses, blue-collar workers. And if we look farther into the book in chapter 7 of Amos, 
uh, verses 14 through 15, he tells us a little bit more about himself, and he talks about this, right? He says, in 14, he says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. Basically, what he says is, I wasn't a professional prophet. I, I wasn't raised in the prophetic, which was something that then during that time was there. He says, but I was a herdsman. I was this shepherd. He said, I was a dresser of sycamore figs. And then in verse 15, he says, but the Lord took me from following the flock, basically saying the Lord took me from this blue-collar work that I was doing. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. And then he says, now therefore hear the words of the Lord. We'll get into that as the weeks come. But we see that Amos wasn't a professional prophet. He was not formally trained. He was an ordinary man who was called by God. I want to pause and just glean a few lessons from this. Number one, brothers and sisters, be faithful in your daily activities. Be faithful. If you're taking notes, just write down faithful. Be faithful in your daily activities and we are such a culture that so often looks for the next extraordinary thing. Right? We want to want to do something big. And I don't want to be a dream crusher. Like, have dreams. That's great. But so often, we forget that God has called us to engage in daily, ordinary work. That's most of the Christian life. We're going to do ordinary things to the glory of God, right? Soli Deo Gloria. All things we do. Don't count yourself insignificant if you're not doing something extraordinary in your own eyes. Being faithful with what God has given you to do, whether that's at work or school, community, raising children, whatever you have been called to do, be faithful with your daily activities. That's what Amos was doing here. We see that time and time again throughout Scripture, right? But then we also see trust. You're taking notes, just write down trust. Trust that God will prepare you for whatever he's called you to do. See, Amos he trusted that the Lord would prepare him for the work. And brothers and sisters, it, it is by God's grace that we do anything, any type of ministry, any work for the Lord is all by his grace. That neighbor maybe you're called to witness to, maybe that coworker, that student, that teacher, maybe. Maybe it's just the daily grind of discipling children. No, that's tough. Maybe those that have been called to missionary, those that have been called to pastor or 
lead ministries. God will equip you for what He's called you to do. The third one I just want to point out here is, and you can write down, obey. Obey God's call. Don't wait for your idea, your ideal call and your idea of extraordinary. Be faithful and obedient to whatever the Lord calls you to do. Just like those before him, right? Just like the apostles after him. Amos left everything behind. He said, I was a herdsman and God called me to go and so I went. Amos says, the Lord took me. Remember the apostles, right? They, they go. They leave their lives behind. The question we've got to ask ourselves, right? Are we willing to go where God has called us? And once again, that might be next door. It might be across the street in your neighborhood. Are you willing to go where God has called you? But we also must take note here that Amos was well-rounded in the problems of his day and the scripture of his time. So he wasn't just some ignorant man that was just oblivious to what was going on around him. He wasn't just oblivious to uh, the scriptures and just he wasn't uh, he didn't have this faith that well God will just download everything in me that I need to prepare me for what he's called no we see here that Amos was he was a student throughout the prophecy Amos reveals a deep knowledge of history and there are many points of contact here uh, with the Pentateuch um, there he uses the terms for sacrifice. He uses a free will offering. Uh, he uses solemn assembly. He uses meal offering. He uses burnt offering. He uses a lot of things that would uh, incline us to believe that he was a student of Scripture of his time. So it is safe to say that we have a man here who took his studies of the Word and the world around him serious. Brothers and sisters, God has now given us a wealth of knowledge and resource to prepare us for any calling that he calls us to. Once again, in his word. And we see here, as we study this book for the next however many weeks, 10 to 12, it's going to be based on how some of these are broken up once we start to preach them. But we will see that man, we, would, we would do well to model Amos' studies. We would do well to be aware of what's going on around us. To be aware of the, the problems of the world around us and not just shrink back disengage said a few weeks back uh, a Charles uh, Spurgeon quote and it ends with 
Here's the, the, the time for man is now. Where is the man for the time? And brothers and sisters, man, I am confident that the Lord will raise up leaders even amongst this small congregation that will be bold witnesses and will stand true on the words of God. That He will equip us. But we must be faithful students. We must take advantage of this wealth of knowledge by diligent study of the Word. What are you spending your time doing? What occupies your time? There are many good things that can. There are many good things that do. But too often, for Christians especially, it's the good things that take priority over the best thing. No, we shouldn't neglect our families. We should not. That is our first ministry. But we must be students of the Word. We also read in verse 1 that Amos is from Tekoa. And Tekoa was a small town in southern Judah that was situated in the highlands about five miles southeast of Bethlehem. Um, in Second Chronicles, this area is described as kind of a wilderness. It was a wild place. So Amos wasn't laid up in the modern comforts of the suburbs, right, before he answered his call to the prophetic. But it's also important to remember that he's an outsider here. So he's an outsider that is bringing this judgment and this, uh, this word of judgment from God to these people. He's coming to prophesy. He's an outsider. It wasn't a welcome committee. They didn't have a hospitality team welcoming him, probably wasn't well-liked. Now, Amos carried out his ministry during the reigns of Uzziah in Judah and Jeroboam II in Israel. And since both of these kings had lengthy reigns, an extended time frame emerges when the book could have been written. Um, Jeroboam II began to reign over Israel in 793 B.C. And then Uzziah actually died in 739 B.C. And so uh, many scholars would suggest a date in the middle of the period for the time of writing of this book. Uh, you can say around uh, 760 B.C. But that is an estimate. There is no definitive confirmation that it could not have been a little bit earlier or later. But regardless of the exact time of writing, Amos prophesied during a time of great prosperity, as I mentioned before. Um, without going into kind of the full uh, story of Israel right now, um, we all know there had been uh, enmity between the children of Israel, and they have struggled with conflict amongst the tribes from the beginning, right? We, we know that. There's been conflict amongst them. 
And what eventually happens is Israel splits into two kingdoms, right? You've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Um, and during this time of writing, there were actually peace in the kingdoms, which was very uncommon. Uh, the apparent stability of long reigns have, had brought this peace. Uh, there was also great commercial wealth, and there were strong armies in both kingdoms. Uh, Jeroboam II had gained considerable wealth from his spoils taken in battle. So he would go and wipe out people and he would uh, pillage their village, right, and take everything that they had. Uh, he was also uh, known for extreme taxing on his people. And from the, he, would, uh, he was an oppressor of the poor people around him. Which, and he also forced many of them into slavery. So he wasn't a very good dude. This is what Amos is going up against. We must take note here that while there was an abundance of wealth, there was no gratitude or concern for God. Their prosperity had led them to engage in sinful activities that were not pleasing to the Lord, as we said earlier. But Amos did not shy away from speaking the message of God. And as we close, I want to just give us kind of two categories. And I encourage you to take notes and write these down um, as we go through these, or this uh, book. Um, you're going to kind of see these two categories and different things. And what I'll encourage you to do, uh, the first one, we're going to get, kind of see the doctrinal content of the book. Um, kind of the systematic theology of what's happening here. How do we see God at work here? And so what you can do is if you're a note taker, uh, you can write down a big heading uh, under this. And as we're studying in the weeks to come, you can write down different things that you see. And uh, it will help you as you go back and, and look through this later. But one, we're going to look at the doctrinal content of the book. And then two, we're going to look at the overview of the prophecy. One, the doctrinal content. So here's what we're going to kind of see, right? There's kind of three kind of major categories, and there's going to be some subcategories in each one of these. One, we're going to see the doctrine of God. We'll see the doctrine of God. We'll see God as creator, um, his omniscience, his uh, transcendence, uh, many more things, right? But we're going to see these things on display as we look at this doctrine of God. The second thing we'll see, big category, is the sinfulness of man. We're going to see the sinfulness of man on display. We're going to see man's failure to listen. That's just embedded in us, right? See here, our selfishness. We're going to see man's greed on display here. And then the third big category is religious failure. We're not going to get into all these now. Once again, I'm just setting the course for the weeks to come. I don't love intro messages, but they're important to help us to get an idea of what we're doing as we move forward. But we'll see religious failure. Okay, so we're going to see some religious prostitution, right? That they are exchanging the things of God for the things of the world. Uh, we also, as I mentioned before, we see this kind of false sense of security, that I think is very applicable to many in the church today. So we'll see the doctrine of God, we'll see the sinfulness of man, and we'll see the religious failure.
quick overview of the prophecy. It's going to be four of these, okay? One, see the denunciation of Israel. It's going to speak against Israel, right? I mean, Amos condemns the falseness of their worship and the sinfulness of their deeds. Two, we're going to see the judgment of God. See, God's judgment on display here. Uh, There's like five prophetic visions of judgment that we'll get into that are revealed that actually each one tells us something different. It's actually very interesting and very applicable. I'm excited for us to get there. I hope you, uh, this is uh, whetting your appetite for this study. The third thing we'll see here is kind of the way of repentance. Praise God, right? Once again, the prophetic books do not just end with judgment. They, the goal is always restoration. The way of repentance. Amos is going to lay out the differences in kind of vain worship, which is prevalent in our time, and what is true worship. How do we truly worship this creator? Which is one of the greatest questions that we should all answer in our lives. And then four, once again, we'll see this promise of future restoration. So He's going to give us the way of repentance, but then we'll see the promise of full restoration. I mean, Amos reminds us that God will indeed save a people for himself. I mean, in spite of the sinfulness of humanity, God will have his people. And that is good news. Despite your failures, despite your falling short, God has made a way. And that's where I want to close and just kind of spend these last few minutes. God's grace on display. God's grace is on display in this book in mighty in many ways. And I don't want you to miss that as we go into this study. I mean, God promises, not because he has to, (laughs) not because he has to, He owes somebody something. If you've been studying Genesis, you see that it is God at work in in this covenant that he's kept. It's God continually working in spite of the failures of man. He promises that I will restore you if you turn back to me. And once again, that promise is still available. That promise is constantly available for anyone who would turn from their sinful ways, who would trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and follow God. Amos teaches us that, look, sin has got to be dealt with. The Bible tells us that sin must be dealt with. God would not be God if God did not deal with sin. 
He must deal with sin. And for believers, his purification, and we'll see this later, is a good thing for us, right? We're going to see that he's going to rid the world of sin. His judgment is a good thing for us. But sin must be dealt with. But brothers and sisters, there is mercy for sinners. See, listen, God will judge sin, but for Christians, guess what? That sin is judged on the cross through Christ. That's where we rest. That our, our, our sins have been dealt with. There is now life abundant. Restoration that is unimaginable. And let us be a people that abhor sin the way that God does that hate sin, that make war on sin. But all the while, let us be a people that proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all around us. And let us be bold. I I, I pray that this would stir up boldness in our church. That we would be a people that stand firm on his word. Man, by God's grace, would we be protected in our American lives of comfort from the burden of prosperity? May we be protected. Would, would God work in and through us? And would we be a people that are always dependent on him? It's my prayer. It's our hope. And I pray that you would join me in that prayer as well. Let's go to the Lord. Thank him for this time.